Have you heard about The Greatest Story Never Told? That is the title of a six-hour documentary produced back in 2013 that suggests that Adolf Hitler and his Third Reich really weren't so bad. I don't know who's funding this documentary. We should probably get that list, but it has a shocking number of 10 out of 10 ratings on IMDb. You thought the internet couldn't get any worse. It can. The reviewers call the movie excellent, eye-opening, life-changing truth. I don't know about you, but I'm glad it's a story that's never told. Uh, the Gospel of Luke contains a story that I would call less often told, maybe seldom told. Obviously, it's right here in our Bibles, the most published book of all time, but think about it. When it comes to stories about Jesus that we frequently remember or frequently reference or write songs about or put in curriculum or in children's Bible, this one isn't usually in the list for some reason. Even when we think about the people that Jesus raised from the dead, this story seems to be the last one we remember, even though it's the first one. Uh, we think of Lazarus, of course, that's a very dramatic story, and if you've uh, grown up in church or familiar with the Bible, you probably know about Jairus' daughter, that tender moment, but there's another story, the one we just heard read. It's found only in the Gospel of Luke, but it's full of hope and tenderness and full of God's heart toward you. One commentator wrote, in many ways, this is the loveliest story in all the Gospels. So let's take a look at it. Our story begins in verse 11 with Jesus on the road. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. After what? It was after Jesus gave what we refer to commonly as the Sermon on the Mount. Only in the Gospel of Luke, it's the Sermon on the Plain. If you page back and see him giving it, you'll see He's on a flat place specifically. And it's not that there's a disagreement. It's that Jesus gave that sermon more than once, multiple times. He would go to different places and deliver what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So after finishing it another time, some people come up to Jesus and they ask him to come and heal the dying servant of a centurion. Now, Jesus did without even entering the house. That's a famous story that we reference all the time, very familiar to us. And it proved that Jesus was not just a guy with good ideas. He wasn't just a teacher with valuable philosophy. He was something much, much more. And so a crowd started following after him. That healing took place in the city of Capernaum. Now Jesus and his disciples and the crowd with him started walking 25 miles or so, a day's journey, to the little city of Nain, which was at the base of Mount Hermon. The question is, why was Jesus going to Nain? Uh, Jesus had specific reasons for going the places that he went. He said that he only did what the Father wanted him to do. We see in the Gospels that he was led by the Holy Spirit from place to place. And at the same time, we know that any place, each place that he visited, he could have stayed for all three and a half years of his earthly ministry doing work there and healing and teaching. And, and, and so why name that day? There are moments in the Gospels where I'm thinking of the one where Jesus had been praying all night and the disciples come and find him and they say, hey, where have you been? There's so many people here looking for you. There's so many people that need healing and that need ministry. And Jesus said, okay, we're leaving right now and we're going to this town over here because he was led by the Father to go from place to place very specifically. So why name? Why that day? Well, as readers, if we're going through the Gospels, as far as the Bible is concerned, this funeral that we're about to see was the only reason 
Jesus undoubtedly did other things in the city, spoke to other people, but there are no other stories recorded about this place or Jesus' time there. So as we're going through the story of Christ, this is the reason he walked 25 miles to Nain that day. We look at verse 12 and see, just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was also with her. In verse 14, Jesus will identify him as a young man. That's the term he used. And the word means a youth, a man under 40 in the prime of his life. And so I'm sorry to report that I and many of you are no longer in the prime of your life. That's okay. Resurrection's coming. You've maybe gone to a funeral of a believer, you know, uh, you know, an old saint who lived a long time serving the Lord and blessing others and and maybe even going on the little paper, it was called a celebration of life, right? Most of us have experienced uh, a funeral like that, a memorial like that. There's no f- celebration at this funeral that day. No appreciation of a life well lived. This young man, he died too early from our way of thinking. Uh, his death additionally would have been practically a death sentence for his widowed mother as well. You see, she had no husband. She had no other sons. This woman is now all alone in a very hostile world. Today, she's crushed by grief, the greatest grief she's known. Tomorrow, she's going to be crushed by circumstances, totally helpless, totally dependent on the charity of others for even basic needs of survival. Her son probably died within the last 24 hours. It was customary for Jews to bury their dead quickly. But what does that mean? It means that while Jesus was healing the servant of a Gentile occupier, this man was taking his last gasps of breath. Now remember, a large crowd is with Jesus, a bunch of people. The disciples were with him. They had seen what he did back in Capernaum. They knew Jesus could heal from afar, that he seemed to know all sorts of things that were going on. He even knew the thoughts that people were thinking so, uh, in a lot of these situations. And so I think it's very possible and probable that at least a few people traveling with Jesus thought, you know, why were we helping a Roman soldier while a son of Abraham was left to die? We know that's the case because we think things like that sometimes, don't we, in our heart of hearts? And we see on the pages of Scripture complaints like that coming out from time to time. We think something similar today if we pause and realize, okay, well, God, he can do whatever he wants. We believe that. We know that to be true. And so God could heal everyone of every sickness, every malady, every injury, every cancer patient, every amputee, every quadriplegic. If he's a God of love, why doesn't he do that? And that's a fair question, and and essentially that's the question, the main question that most unbelievers have. We refer to it as the problem of pain. If God has power and if God is love, why does he allow these things to happen? Why does he allow sickness to continue? Why doesn't he just speak and heal everyone since he could do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and that's a long conversation, but one important reason revealed in scripture is that more than a physical healing, the people of earth, you and I, we need a personal encounter with God, our heart and his heart. There's a work of the soul that is more pressing, that's more urgent and needful than any physical suffering we face. 
When the paralytic was brought to Jesus, and you remember they break through the roof and lower him down, the first thing Jesus did was the soul work. He forgave the man of his sins. That's not to say that God doesn't care about our physical suffering. He absolutely does. This story and the story of the paralytic lowered through the roof and so many others prove that. And God says, hey, I'm mindful of that. I know about that. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. Uh, But the soul work is the most needful, most urgent, most important thing in our lives and in everyone's life. And we want to remind ourselves, if you're a Christian here today, remind yourself of this truth. You have some sickness, you have some hurt, you have some sorrow, some injury, whatever it is, or the people you love endure those things. One day, God will heal every single sickness and sorrow, every single infirmity and hurt in his forever kingdom. It's all going to go away. Every ounce of guilt, every twinge of pain, every sorrow, every suffering, it will be dealt with. In your life personally, you are headed, if you're a Christian, you are headed for a moment where it will all be healed through and through. And not only will it be healed, but you will be alive in a way that you and I have never been alive before in glory, in heaven, in perfect immortality. And so the Lord is going to heal every single sickness. But in the here and now, though God does still heal in some cases, more often we are called to endure suffering that his strength may be made perfect in our weakness. More often, God's long suffering is waiting so that more people can be brought into the kingdom because once the kingdom starts, that's it, right? Once the kingdom starts, the the fates are sealed, as it were, And those who have not received Christ will go into a Christless eternity, and those who have go into a Christ-filled eternity. But the Lord says, I'm waiting because I want to fill my kingdom. And so in the meantime, you're going to live in a world that is ruined by sin, and I'm going to leave you there, and you're going to have to face some of the ramification and impacts of sin and creation so that you can be a light, so that you can be salt, so that you can be a part of my loving work of drawing others to myself. Let's look back at these crowds, though. There's a large crowd with Jesus, a large crowd with the woman. It's an interesting picture. There are terms used for very big groups of people. One group excited about the Savior, one group wailing and mourning, one defined by life, one defined by death, and then they come together here. They meet on the road outside the city. The crowd with Jesus had undoubtedly been full of incredible excitement. I mean, how excited would you have to be to walk 25 miles right now, right, to go somewhere? I'd have to be pretty darn excited. But man, look at what Jesus can do. Did you see this? Did you hear this? Oh, and this is what he said in the sermon, and just full of just effervescence, I'm guessing. But I wonder if the wind came out of their sails as they heard the wailing and the screams of sorrow, as they saw the funeral procession coming out of the city. After all, Yes, this rabbi that they were following had healed a sick man, but this person in the funeral, he he wasn't dying, he was dead. By the way, it's not a case of misdiagnosis or people not realizing that he wasn't actually dead. This happens in the third world a lot from time to time. You'll see news stories about a person waking up in a morgue or at their funeral and they were misdiagnosed. Uh, But remember, Luke is a doctor. This guy's dead, all the way dead. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. There were many people gathered, many more than are here with us today. 
Jesus had specific personal focus on this one person. It was the woman that Jesus had compassion on. Did you notice that? He didn't have compassion on the young man. I suspect because he knew the young man was enjoying the glories of paradise in the place called Abraham's bosom. Now, Luke doesn't specifically tell us where the young man was, if he, you know, had been effectively uh, saved, you know, a, a follower of God before this, but I think it's an easy assumption to make. And then at the polar opposite of being in Abraham's bosom in immortality is his mother. It was her darkest hour, her, her moment of, of, of greatest pain and grief and desperation. The people of Nain came to mourn with her, but other than helping her bury her son, there was nothing anyone could really do for her. In the future, they might be able to throw her some scraps that they scrounged together so that she wouldn't starve, but other than that, no hope. All of them felt bad for her, but then there's Jesus, who didn't just feel bad for her, his heart went out to her in action. Luke uses the strongest word possible to describe Jesus' pity on her. We see the word compassion, and it's kind of a a regular word for us, but linguists explain that the root word in the Bible refers to the yearning of the viscera, that his heart was going out to her because this is a God of active love who doesn't just say, I feel bad for you. He says, I'm going to do good for you because of my love for you. And so he walks over to this woman who has just lost her only son. And what does he say to her? Don't weep. Now, I've been to a lot of funerals. It's part of the job. I've never walked up to a grieving person at a funeral and said, you should stop crying. And I recommend you also do not do that. It's not something that should be said in a moment like this. But Jesus can. Why? Well, we read it and we think, well, he's about to do something. But no one in this scene knew he was going to raise this man from the dead. Jairus' daughter hadn't been raised yet. Lazarus hadn't been raised yet. This was probably a, a concept that was off the table for anyone at the funeral there that day. It's one thing to help a blind man see. It's one thing to take a fever away from somebody. This guy's dead. You can't bring him back from the dead. That's what I would have thought if I was in the crowd that day. But he says, don't weep. Luke gives us a subtle commentary on this scene. You notice there he said at the beginning of the verse, the Lord saw her. You see, this is no mere rabbi. This is the Lord. He is the supernatural master over all, the ruler who exercises authority. And so when he walked over to this weeping woman and looked in her eyes and he says, don't weep, I don't believe it would have been an offense to her because his words have authority. What did people say when Jesus spoke? They said, nobody speaks like this man. He speaks with authority. We've heard the scribes, we've heard the Pharisees, experts. They know more about the Old Testament than any of us could ever hope to. But man, what they're talking about is like nothing compared to what this guy says because he speaks with authority. And so the Lord spoke. And so when he speaks, the words are not empty cliches. They're not just things you say to fill the space. No, when he speaks, the cosmos bends. Do you know that the Lord has the same compassion for you that he did for this widow woman? He does. Psalm 145 tells us his compassion rests on all he has made. That's you, that's me, that's everyone here. It rests on you. He knows your hurts and your fears. He knows the thoughts that fill your mind. The tears that fall from your eyes 
and evaporate into the air or soaked into your cheeks or wiped away with the Kleenex and then throws, thrown away. You know what God does? The book of Psalms says that he takes those tears and bottles them up and then keeps a record of them in his book. Do you know that there's a library in heaven? There is. It's full of the Lord's books. There's the Lamb's book of life and the book of good works. There's different books referenced in the Bible. And he talks about writing a record of your tears in his book. I I firmly believe we're going to be able to walk through the doors of heaven's library one day and say, where's the tears section? They'll be like, that's that way. Go find it. And there they will be, an explanation, not only of the fact that you shed those tears, but that the Lord said, and I saw, and here's what I was doing in the background, working through time and space and and history, and all of these different relationships so that I could pour out my grace and my love for you. That's the kind of compassion that the Lord has for us. He's a loving, merciful rescuer who wants to envelop you with his grace, a God of action, acting love. Verse 14, then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearers stopped, and he said, young man, I tell you, get up. So let's notice, the funeral is still happening. The pallbearers are walking And notice that no one asked Jesus to do anything. Of all the hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people in this scene, no one had the good idea to say, hey, Lord, could you do something here? No one asked him to do anything, and yet there he is, acting and moving. This is who the God of the Bible is. Without being asked, he brings himself into humanity's need. While Adam and Eve were in rebellion, while they were fleeing from God's presence, what did God do? He came to them and called to them. When Hagar went running out of the tent into the wilderness, hopeless, about to die, God went and found her so he could save her. As Saul of Tarsus plunged headlong into hate and murder and blasphemy, what had happened? The Lord went and met him on the road so he could make him an offer of peace and forgiveness. The Bible tells us at just the right time, while we were helpless and destined for an eternity in hell, Christ died for us, the ungodly, the undeserving, the undesirable. He loved us first. That's how great his love is. Now, this young man, maybe your version says coffin or open coffin. Get our version of a coffin out of your head. This would have been what is called a beer, effectively a a plank with stuff on it. And and so his body is exposed there. And though his body was dead, it's clear that this fellow was alive somewhere because Jesus could speak to him and he could hear. Now, I think this is interesting so again, let's, we're speculating a little bit, but this young man is in Abraham's bosom. He is in an immortal state, in the afterlife, hanging out. Is there a PA down there? Because the Lord is going to say, I tell you, get up. And so you're hanging out with, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and talking about the thing. Young man. Oh, now serving young man from Nain. Like, what? You have to go back. What do you mean I have to go back? You're going back. Oh. I mean, so this, this is a real thing that happened. And so the Lord goes and he does this. He calls to him. But more than that, he, we see he touches the coffin. He touches the beer. Touching a coffin would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. But as usual, Jesus did not care. He doesn't care about that. 
He wasn't afraid to lay his hand on a coffin. He wasn't afraid to enter a Gentile's house. He wasn't afraid to embrace a leper. That's how great his tenderness and compassion are for the people of earth. When I was in college, I lifeguarded for a few summers. And I remember when we were in training, one of the things that really stuck with me, they talked about how, hey, listen, when if somebody comes over, you have to render aid of one kind or another. The first thing you do, you need to glove up. And I remember the, the trainer, my boss, said, if it's wet and sticky and not yours, you don't touch it. Well, that's, that's, a good, that's a good maxim for my life. And you felt weird until that first kid came up and his legs like all bleeding because he was running around the pool deck. That's why we're blowing the whistle. And he fell and he scraped his wet leg on there. Now it's oozing and pussing and bleeding. I'm like, you're good. And putting gloves on. And then we'll take care of that. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't wait to glove up. He embraced, a lep he embraced lepers. He touched coffins. He did all of these things because that's how great his love is. And so Jesus stands in front of the procession. The pallbearers are forced to stop. And Jesus says, young man, I tell you, I have something to say in this situation. You see, the doctors of Nain had said there's nothing more they could do. The neighbors around the woman had said, listen, it's time. We have to bury your son. The grave smiled and said, you are mine. He claimed this young man. But Jesus Christ... The Lord and Savior, the King of Kings, he said, no, I tell you, get up, and I have the final word. Someone wrote, Jesus claimed as his own what death had seized as his prey. But Jesus snatched this young man out of that trap. If you're born again, if you've been saved by Jesus, death has no power over you. It does not rule you. It cannot threaten you. All the sting and all the victory has been taken away from the grave. Now, Jesus has authority to tell death what to do because all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to him. And so this morning, you and I, we may be dying. We are. Everybody in here is dying. Did you know that? But you may be dying. You may be sick. You may be weak. You may be poor. You may be afraid. You may be confused or discouraged or depressed or in doubt. But Jesus Christ is Lord and his compassion rests on you and his compassion does not fail. He has love for you and grace for you and wants to walk with you day by day in this life, ultimately uniting with you in eternity where you're going to live forever with him face to face. Those are the facts of the story. That's the truth as revealed on the pages of scripture. But also scripture reveals this. There is no other rescue from death. No other way out of the grave. There are no other options that lead to life. It is Jesus, only Jesus. Verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Luke's medical training leaks through again here in his writing. Linguists explain that sat up is a technical term, a medical term for a patient sitting up in bed. What did he say, I wonder? That's one of the things you wish was recorded. It could have been, what are we all doing here? I think it's more likely that he had been, obviously he was conscious in the next life. And so I imagine him saying, man, you can't believe who I saw down there. You can't believe the conversations I just had. You guys talk about Moses. I've met Moses. This would have been an absolute scene. Uh, in order to prepare for this study, I watched uh, a variety of videos of medical professionals uh, pulling pranks on their coworkers using dead bodies. When that body bag starts moving, people freak out, right? 
some great ones like compilations on YouTube of morticians and like people, they're pulling out the thing thinking that it's a dead body and oh, it's not dead. The screams and the, and the, the you know, the adrenaline, you, you can feel it palpably through the computer screen. Wouldn't you freak out? Have you ever been to a funeral where somebody sat up in their coffin and started talking? I think it's amazing Jesus didn't have to raise a few more dead people after this happened, after heart attacks might have suffered. Oh, wait, hang on, we've got to get three or four more people here. Now, according to the Mishnah, which was written between 30 BC and 200 AD, when a Jew was prepared for burial, the jaw of that individual would be bound shut. They didn't really want the mouth flapping while the proceedings were going. And so it's interesting, similar to Lazarus being bound up and Jesus says, unbind him, this young man would have been set free from his bonds and then he became a living, speaking testimony of God's power and grace. And so it's a good visual representation, a reminder to us that God saves and he frees us from our bonds. He frees us to preach and to testify and to share the good news of what he does and what he's done in our lives. Now, what was the purpose of this young man's life now more than ever before? Was it to just like, well, you get a second, you get a do-over, so just have a lot of fun. We see it there. His, his purpose in life now was to support and serve. What does it say? It says Jesus gave him to his mother. He says, I'm giving you not just healing your son. I'm giving you a gift. You are a person in need. You are absolutely helpless. There's no hope for you economically or relationally unless I give you this person. And now I'm going to give him to you to support and serve you. And so in her moment of need, Jesus met that need by giving her another person. You realize the Lord could have done a miracle of money and said, hey, I'm really sorry for your loss. That's awful. Here's a bunch of money. He could have done a miracle of food supply. We see lots of miracles of food supply. Manna in the wilderness or in the kings, the prophets, sometimes they had the miracle of the flowing oil or the flour. Or even Jesus did miracles of loaves and fishes. He could have done that. Could have done any kind of miracle he wanted. Instead, he gave her a person. This man was now given to her to support and to serve her. And you know what that means? It, meant, it means he would have to die again someday. But aren't we glad that he would have to die again someday? I mean, we don't think about it that way, but aren't we glad that the Lord pulled him out of the grave, not for his sake, but for her sake? so that she would have hope, so that she would have help, so that she would have a living, breathing testimony of God's love and kindness and power on her behalf. So now let's bring it to ourselves. Similarly, God sends us to serve others, to support one another, to be in relationship with others as living representatives of God's grace and power and kindness. This world has many needs, and the Lord says, that, that's right. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pull you out of death in the grave, and I'm going to fill you with living water, and I'm going to make you a, a, a testifier and a preacher and a conduit of my grace, and then I'm going to give you to the world as salt and light. I'm going to put you into specific times, specific places, give you specific opportunities so that you can be that gift from heaven to earth to others. Yes, we will have to suffer in this life. Yes, we will face physical death one day unless the Lord returns for us. But we know what's on the other side, just like this young man. Now, we haven't seen it with our own eyes, 
But we know what's on the other side. We believe the Lord. We've seen the revelation of Scripture. And we know that a life lived in service to the Lord is worth the trouble and the difficulty. Paul once said rather honestly, he said, listen to the Philippians, I would rather be dead. (laughs) I would rather be dead, which means I'm alive in heaven. That would be better than me being here on earth. But if I'm here on earth, that is a benefit and a necessary thing for the people God has sent me to serve. And so I'm going to be here serving you as long as the Lord wants. Verse 16, then fear came over everyone and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Now the people weren't wrong. Their understanding of Jesus was just incomplete and we can't blame them. Even the disciples didn't really understand the Lord until after his resurrection. That includes the disciples that saw him transfigured. And then after the resurrection, they're like, oh, I see. All those times he told us he was going to be crucified and resurrected, and we said, I don't know what that means. And now, oh, he got resurrected, you know? So we can't blame them. We, on the other hand, from our vantage point, we have the full revelation of who Jesus is. And we should respond accordingly, and we should take it all in and not leave out parts that we find inconvenient. Why did they call Jesus a prophet when he didn't prophesy? It's because this scene closely mirrors the story of Elijah, the great prophet of Israel. In 1 Kings 17, we read about Elijah, the great prophet, how he encountered a widow at a city gate, and shortly after her son became sick and died, and Elijah had compassion on her and appealed to God, and the son was raised, and then we read, he gave him to his mother. Luke uses the exact phrasing that we find in the Septuagint version of 1 Kings. Now, the Jews knew this story. They really knew it. And they knew from the writings of Moses that they should be watching and waiting for another great prophet to arrive, one that would arise from among them and have the very words of God in his mouth. Jesus was demonstrating to them that he was the prophet. He was greater than Moses. He was greater than Elijah. You see, Elijah had to call out to the Lord multiple times, and he begged the Lord, Lord God, you raise this boy from the dead, and the Lord did because he was merciful. That's not what Jesus does here. Jesus walked up to the coffin and he said, I say he's much greater than Elijah. The people were starting to catch on. They gave him the highest title they could think of. And then they said, God has visited his people. Fred Craddock points out God's visitation to us may be in wrath or in mercy, but for Luke, it was always an act of grace. And so they saw what was happening. They realized this is so much grace. This is so much kindness. God has visited us. And so the question is, do we recognize God's grace? Do we try to view our life and our circumstances and the world around us through the understanding that God is always desiring to pour out his grace and mercy, not just generally, but specifically in and through our lives? Have we understood Jesus as he's been revealed to us in scripture? Not not a savior of our own design, not a savior that supports what I already think or what I already wanna do, but the savior who's revealed on the pages of scripture. Jesus said, I came in the volume of the book. Do we understand him for all that he is? Have we given him the highest title of honor and praise in our hearts? And do we realize that he's visiting us now? Jesus is with us now. That's what the Bible says. It's hard for us because we walk around so dependent on our five senses, right? And we don't see him. 
and we don't hear him. The Lord says, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of the triune God lives in your heart. The Bible says that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. In a special way, when we gather together in, in this sense as the church, he says, I walk in the midst of the candlesticks. I am here. Jesus is with us. Do we realize his visitation? Verse 17, this report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. You know why? Because this was a story worth telling. Let me tell you a story. It's one that's about you. The God of heaven and earth knows you and he loves you. He made you by hand in your mother's womb. Because of sin, you're going to die one day. Whether you acknowledge God and receive his forgiveness or not, one day you are going to be called out of the grave. Only he has the authority to call you out, but he's going to. And he's going to call every single person listening today out of the grave and every other person to ever exist. Those who have been born again are going to be called out of the grave by a father, like children being called home for dinner. And they're going to be called home into an everlasting inheritance in heaven. Those who are not born again, they also will be called out of the grave, not by a father, but by the judge. And they're going to be brought before what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. And at that judgment, they will be found guilty of their sin that they would not give to Jesus. And the wages of those sin are death. And their destiny is eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. So which version of the story will be told for your life? When I was a kid, I loved those choose your own adventure books. And when I would choose wrong and it's like, you're dead, I would just flip back, flip back and be like, I'll choose the other way. I didn't want to end up dead. I wanted to end up alive with the treasure, right? And so you get to choose your own eternal adventure. God has given you that responsibility, has given you that privilege. Recently, we watched the epic classic Ben-Hur with the kids. There's a great scene where Judah Ben-Hur stands before Pontius Pilate, a friend he's known from Rome, and he must make a choice whether he's going to pledge himself to Rome or to the Jewish people. And Pilate's standing in the room where he officiates his thrones in the background, and he says to Ben-Hur, he says, I crossed this floor and spoke in friendship. But when I go up these stairs, I become the hand of Caesar ready to crush all those who challenge his authority. If you stay here, you will find yourself part of this tragedy. Now, Christ Jesus is not worried about you challenging his authority. All authority forever belongs to him. But he is your friend and he is concerned that you might perish for your sin. He does not want that. His compassion is too great. He came from heaven into the horrors of earth so that he could make a way, one way that we could be rescued from sin in the grave, rescued from death and have hope everlasting. He's gonna call you out of the grave one day. And meanwhile, a whole other story is the fact that he is calling to you now. Not just calling for you to be saved, but he's calling then the rest of us who are believers already, calling us to walk with him and to receive his strength and his grace and his love today, day by day. It's not only about the next life, it's for this life too. His love and compassion extends from eternity all the way into this very moment. So the question is, will we hear him and follow him and be a part of the story?